Well, I would invite you to take your pew Bible, and we'll open to John first. John 1, we'll read verses 43 to 51, that's page 1054 of your pew Bible. John 1, 43 to 51. Congregation, hear now the word of the Lord. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. So far the reading of God's Word. And I would invite you to turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Ruth, We'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. It's page 262, and this will be our sermon text this evening. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, there on page 262. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband Amen. So far, the reading of God's Word. Let's ask for His help now. Let's call upon the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, it's only by Your help that we come into Your presence. But we know that it's in Your name, the God who made heaven and earth, that we come. You are our help. 
Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to see Jesus Christ, even here in the book of Ruth. Oh, Lord, speak your gospel to us again this evening. Lord, we're hungry for your word. Please fill us, oh, Lord. Please send bread to your people, even this evening, by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, nobody likes sob stories, do they? We've all heard sob stories, right? They make you feel real bad when you hear them. You're like, what can I do to fix it? Can I do anything to fix it? And sometimes you hear one of these sob stories and the person didn't do anything worthy of it, and there they are. Other times you hear a sob story and say, yeah, you really had it coming. <laughs> this is a series of bad decisions made over a period of years, and you should have saw it coming. Well, that's the story of Ruth here in our passage. It's one of those sob stories that anybody should have seen coming, frankly. It was a series of bad decisions made over years. But in spite of that, I hope that we can remember, as we look at this passage today, that God is at work, even in a family that has compromised again and again with sin. A family at rock bottom, a nation at rock bottom. God is still working redemption at rock bottom for his people. Because salvation is of the Lord. It's of grace. And we see that even here in the first five verses of Ruth. And so we're going to look at that in this story here today. We'll look at it in three points. First, we'll look at this is the wrong time and it's the wrong place, humanly speaking, for anything good to be happening. And then I'll, we'll be looking at the family itself. We'll see how this family compromised and sinned. And then finally, I want us to ask together, can anything good come out of all this bad? And so, as we open the passage, we see that the story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. You know, your Bible, you know, in the days of the judges, those were the days when every man did what was right in his own eyes. It wasn't exactly a high point for piety in Israel's history, was it? You know, it's hard to think of a time when things were worse than the times of the judges. Remember what had just happened, boys and girls, in the book of Judges. God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt with Moses. He brings them into the promised land. Joshua goes in with the army. They conquer. They kick out the Canaanites. They were, they were awful, and they were sinning, and they were sacrificing uh, to these pagan idol gods. And God says, I'm going to clear the land, and Israel's going to go in. They're going to be holy to the Lord. But then by the time you get to the end of Judges, you begin to ask, is Israel any better than the Canaanites? Because they're acting like Canaanites. They don't look different. The book ends with a civil war against the tribe of Benjamin. The rest of Israel had sworn, we're not going to give our daughters to the sons of Benjamin to wed. And then they feel bad about that, so then they come up with this 
great scheme. They're going to have some of the women go dance at Shiloh, and then the men of Benjamin are going to go snatch the women to be wives. And you think, what? Is this Israel? Is this the church? Not a good time in Israel's history, was it? No, this is a bad time. This sounds more like a pagan myth than you would expect to hear about the church. It's a bad time. And we read it's a bad situation. Aside from taking place during the time of the judges, we read there's a famine in the land. And today you and I might pass over that. A famine, so what? You know, not every famine has a sin underlying it today. It would be wrong for us to assume that it did. But in the Old Testament, they had theological significance for the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, God had promised to bring famines and curses upon his people if they broke his covenant, if they walked away from God. We read about it in Deuteronomy 28. It says that if Israel left God, what does it say? The heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Hard words from the Lord there for his people. Covenant curses. And the flip side of those covenant curses is the Lord promises blessing to his Old Testament people. It says in Psalm 37, I have been young, now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. And so to Old Testament Israel, famine should have been seen as a curse. It should have been a wake-up call. Wake up, repent, seek the Lord before it's too late. Turn back to God. Ask Him to send not just physical rain, but that living water that you can only get from the Lord. They should have repented. And so it's a bad time, bad situation. And we read it's a bad town that this story is taking place in. The story focuses in on a man from Bethlehem, Judah. And today, we might think of Bethlehem as a good town, right? It's where David is from. It's where Jesus was born, right? Little town of Bethlehem, good place. Well, not yet. It's actually a pretty bad place so far, if you remember Judges. It's got a bad reputation. Bethlehem shows up in Judges 17. We read in Judges 17 about the story of Micah the Ephraimite. And Micah the Ephraimite has this idolatrous shrine that he builds, and then he convinces a Levite from where? From Bethlehem to come be his priest. And says, oh, now I know that the Lord has blessed my idol because I have a Levite from Bethlehem. And we think, ah, we're pulling our hair out. What is going on with Israel here? This is craziness. And then it gets even worse when we get to Judges 19. We read about one of the darkest stories in all of Scripture. The Levite's concubine Where's this concubine from? Bethlehem. She goes out, she plays the harlot, and then she's abused to death by these men of Israel in a scene similar to what would have happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. No, Bethlehem has a bad reputation. Not a nice place in our minds as readers, at least so far. It's going to get better later on. You know, when I was in seminary, I lived on the border of a town called Ford Heights. To you, that means nothing. But the moment I mentioned Ford Heights to locals, you could see their eyebrows go up. The hair on the back of their neck stood on end. 
because they were remembering some grisly crimes that happened almost two decades ago. The moment you said it, whoa, you're from Ford Heights. That's kind of the reaction we should be having to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, oh, this is not a good place. We've seen it two times so far, and it hasn't ended well. Then that man from Bethlehem goes to Moab with his family. Bad decision, bad time, bad situation, bad town, now a worse decision. Israel did not have great relations with Moab. You remember Judges 3, you remember the story of Ehud, right? Every boy's favorite Bible story, right? Ehud, the man who kills the king of Eglon, the big fat king of Moab. Remember, boys and girls, that story. Very colorful. Moab had been oppressing God's people for how long? 18 years. This man from Bethlehem should have remembered that. It's not that long ago. Moab was their enemy. And on top of that, what else do we know about Moab? In Genesis 19, we find out their origin story. Not a pretty story there with Lot and his daughter getting drunk. These are accursed people. They're inbred. It's terrible. Why would you go there? And then he should have remembered what happened in the Exodus with Numbers 25. We read about what? The Moabite women tempting the sons of Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry. The Lord sent a plague until Phinehas stood up and put an end to the sin. No, this was a terrible decision by this man from Bethlehem to go to Moab. You have to ask, what kind of a dad would lead his people into Moab? Well, it's a desperate dad who's not depending on God. Instead of relying on God with the eyes of faith, this man is traveling east out of the promised land into a cursed land. The famine that should have caused him to repent and seek the Lord instead causes him to compromise. And what's really ironic in all of this is that the name Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. It's the house of bread. And so this man is literally living. He's leaving the house of bread to go to a cursed land. We could paraphrase the verses here. In the days when the people were doing whatever they thought was right, or actually doing wrong, there was no bread in the house of bread. And so a man took his family out of the promised land into a cursed land. Bad decision, bad time, bad stuff all around. Well, we get that. But who's this family that we read about? Who are we being introduced to? There's a lot of names here right away jumping out at us, and they're significant in the Bible. You know, they're not just there because they sound cool. There's a reason that they're there. And they tell us really everything we need to know right away about this compromised family. First guy we meet is Elimelech, the dad. And it's not a name I'd recommend for your kids today, but it's actually a good name. If you get the meaning, his name translates to, my God is king. My God is king. Great confession, especially during the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing whatever seemed right in his own eyes. No human king. Elimelech's parents wanted to give a testimony to the world. You are all accountable to God for what you do. There may not be a human king, but my God is king, and you're going to have to give an account to him. 
what a wonderful confession. What a tragedy then that my God is king decided to live like there was no God. Takes his eyes off the Lord and goes to Moab. He's living by compromise, not by faith. And then we meet his wife, Naomi. And Naomi has a great name as well. Her name means pleasant in Hebrew. Wonderful name, pleasant. And it's a pretty name during a time of misfortune in Israel, a bright spot in a bleak forecast. Her parents must have had high hopes for pleasant Naomi. She's got a good heritage, I would think. And the picture I get is that Elimelech and Naomi must have been raised right. But then they move off to Moab. You've got to wonder, how seriously were they taking the Lord at this point in their lives? Now, perhaps Naomi was just along for the ride. We, it seems like Elimelech really took the lead here. So I don't want to put too much on Naomi. But if Elimelech and Naomi represent a compromised generation, what do you make of their sons? These guys have rotten names, boys and girls. They're terrible names. Malon and Kilion. Really bad names. Uh, and commentators say these names are so rotten that they argue back and forth. Are they real names? Or is it like the narrator is kind of giving us a wink and a nod as he says these names? Malon and Kilion. The names are related to the word for weakling or sickly, or finished and perished. You could say it bluntly. They named their firstborn Sicko and their second son Dead Meat. Great names for kids, right? Terrible names. But they live up to them. We read about this compromising family. They're there in Moab as immigrants. They're basically there on a green card. And then Elimelech dies almost as soon as we meet the guy. My God is king. What's the family going to do now? They refuse to repent because of the famine. Will dad's death get their attention and cause them to repent? Return to the Lord. Return to the promised land. Well, sad to say, they double down on their compromise and they settle down in Moab. In verse 4, we read that sicko and dead meat take Moabite wives. Bad decision. We read in the Bible that Israel was not supposed to take pagan wives. They weren't supposed to intermarry. Why? Because these pagans were going to lead them astray into idolatry. This was a compromised marriage, you understand. I don't want to whitewash that. Bad decision. Malon and Kilion didn't really seem to care much about what God said in his word. By this point, they were probably practical Moabites. When Elimelech set out for Moab with his family in verse 1, we're told he only wanted to sojourn in Moab. Just a little temporary stay until things get better. A little compromise. And it's easy to justify in our minds, isn't it? There's a famine. Of course I'm going to go where there's food. Little did he know. He would die a stranger in a foreign land and be buried there. That's a horror for Jews. That's a curse for Jews. Now in verse 4, we read that that little compromise turned into 10 years of compromise. They married in. That little drop in the bucket opened the floodgates to sin. The family is assimilating. Brothers and sisters, be so careful with sin. Be so careful with compromise. Call it what it is. Call a spade a spade. 
We need to be serious with it. The devil's going to dress it up. He's going to spray perfume all over, say, oh, it's not that big a deal. Get over yourself. Come on, it's the right thing to do. It's wrong. Call it out for what it is. Don't double down. Turn back. Repent. Go to the Lord. It's a pretty bleak picture here in these first five verses, isn't it? Read these sons then die. Naomi is left widowed. Both her children dead. It's like a death sentence in those days. What's she supposed to do? How is she supposed to take care of herself? You know, she's got these two Moabite daughter-in-laws, but you'd expect them, if they have half a brain, to go back to dad's house and get remarried. That's how you got taken care of back then. It was much more clan-based, much more family-based. No, Naomi is in serious trouble. Having sons was so important to survival in those ancient times and in that culture. Naomi had just lost all hope of a future. She's grieving, old, alone, a stranger in a strange land, probably in danger of starving to death, all because her husband and her sons compromised and forsook the Lord. Naomi is at rock bottom. She's got to be asking herself, can anything good come out of all this bad? Brothers and sisters, even in these five verses, there's one bright spot, one little hint of daylight trying to poke through the gray storm clouds here, and it's not Orpah. It's Ruth. Ruth. Though Ruth is a Moabitess, her name could mean friend, but it also means refresher, refresher, like a nice cold drink of lemonade after working outside in the sun all day. That's Ruth. She's refresher at a time of famine, at one of the most depressing hours in Israel's history. After all, the men had died in a state of compromise. God had a plan for bringing refreshing waters of revival to his famine-stricken people through this recently widowed Moabite girl named Ruth. Through all the cursing and compromise, God is still moving to bless his people who've been fooling around with sin. And now they're miserable. God hasn't forgotten them. Through all the cursing and compromise, he's steadfast in his covenant love for his people. It highlights for us here that God is a God of grace. He works salvation only and solely because of his grace that he works for his people. Though Elimelech, my God is king, had died, God was about to raise up a king for his people through this most unlikely mother, a Moabitess, a marriage of compromise that God turns in to a mother, not only of King David, but of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the flesh. So brothers and sisters, can anything good come out of Moab? Come and see. Read the book of Ruth. They asked something similar 
through our Lord. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what did they say? What was the answer? Come and see. Oh, the disciples saw, and they believed that something good could come out of Nazareth. God can bring good out of Nazareth. He can bring good out of Moab. God can bring good out of Dayton today. He can bring good out of Rock Bottom. He can bring good out of where? The cross, the most unlikely place for good to ever come from Calvary. Can anything good come from that cross? Come and see. Maybe you're at rock bottom. Maybe you're hopeless tonight. Left to yourself, I want to tell you, you and I are hopeless. Left to ourselves, we are at rock bottom. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We're dead meat. We're Malon and Kilion. We deserve to die just like Elimelech because we've compromised with sin. We've abandoned God. We've gone off to Moab. We've abandoned God's promises countless times. But the good news is that God died on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ to pay for decades of compromise and sin that should have killed us. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Can anything good come from that cross? Absolutely. The forgiveness of sins. He went all the way to the grave for our salvation. Brothers and sisters, as they were gathered around that tomb, surely they asked, can anything good come out of that tomb? Well, wait three days and come and see. Our Lord conquered not only death, but sin and hell to bring blessing to his people, to bring refreshing to the ones who are hung up by death and hell and sin. He came to bring life to a dead and dying world. He is the Savior of the world. He is the God of resurrection, the one on whom our hope must rest. And he offers new life even to those who die, both physically and spiritually. New life is found by putting our trust, our faith in Jesus Christ, our gracious God gives us our, the Holy Spirit to work repentance and new life where there was once death and idolatry. Come to the cross and see what God will do. But you know, it's easy to talk about that with the gospel, right? We all agree on that. Oh, the gospel, yes, we get it. But we have trouble believing that God can bring good out of compromised people. I think we do. I know I do at times. I was convicted of this this past week. I had a loved one. My sister went to visit with a childhood friend. We grew up in church together. And this friend had kind of gotten wrapped up in a bad crowd. And she was compromising on her Christian faith. She said she was a Christian, but she's got all these beliefs that are not in line with God's word. And she went and she visited and her friend invited her to church and said, oh, well, maybe it will be okay. They're going to church, right? They get to church, and then, of course, the church was terribly compromised. It was really a synagogue of Satan, if I can say that. They had rainbow flags everywhere, talking about how they were welcoming Muslims without asking them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you're fine. It's fine. Everybody's fine. 
No, it's not. They're pushing abortion in the service. Terrible stuff. Very compromised. And I thought, can anything good come out of a church like that? Well, no. Not left to itself. But if they come to Jesus Christ and repent, absolutely. My sister was there. She said she was so broken up. She was brought to tears in the sanctuary. She just started praying for them. And I thought, Lord, when was the last time I prayed for compromised churches like that? Maybe that's something we could do. Have they gone too far? Israel didn't go too far. No one has gone too far for the Lord to work redemption, even for compromised churches at rock bottom. If we would but come to the Lord and repent, surely we would see good. Surely the Lord would send refreshing even there. Because you know what, brothers and sisters? If we're really honest with ourselves, we know that each and every single one of us have compromised plenty in our own lives. And the amazing thing is that God still brings good out of this church, out of our lives, after everything we've done, because he's a God of grace. So let's come. Let's see Jesus. Even though Ruth starts off as a sob story, happy to say that it's got a good ending. And even though each of us, we're really honest, we're a sob story, when we come to Jesus, there's a happy ending. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come to you again this evening, and we thank you for the good gift of your word, Lord. We thank you that you are the God of salvation, that it's in your name that we're saved and not our own. Oh, Lord, and because of that, we can hope for salvation, even when things are bleak, even when things look terrible, humanly speaking, because there's no sin so great that you can't forgive. There's no situation so hopeless that you can't turn it around because you did in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us this week, we pray, to be people of hope, people of the gospel, even people who overcome compromise. Oh, God, we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.